Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we are your co-hosts. And today I'm talking about the constellation Pegasus and Epona, the Celtic goddess of horses and horse-like stuff. Uh, and I'm like, shout out to Epona because I didn't think about it, Nick, but the new Zelda game comes out tomorrow. We're recording this on Thursday. We obviously pre-ordered it. So um, I know what I'm going to be doing this weekend. So... <laughs> and I do, I do, I do shout out Epona being the horse from Zelda. Exactamundo. Because um, I, honestly... Um, a more popular Google hit than Epona the Goddess. Like, let's just be honest. I mean, look, uh, Epona does have her own song that you play on an ocarina, and there is no, like, globally recognized song on an ocarina for Epona the Goddess. So... That's fair. And Who's the know. real celebrity here? <laughs> um, well, this week I'm talking, I mean, we're sticking with that wildflower stuff because it is... It's spring, y'all. Wildflower season's not done. Uh, I'm talking about evening primrose, which is a very Texan plant. Um, I mean, it's it's all over North America, but I feel like I just evening primrose is like one of the flowers I think about when I think about like wildflowers that are around. Oh, they're all like, over. We the had place. a lot of. Oh, we had a lot of evening primrose, I feel like, in Granberry. Like, I feel like there were so much, like, evening primrose in, like, North Texas. Well, you, sure. you, you know what I think it is, if I'm being, like, super duper honest, and maybe you can confirm this for me, but I think they go for, like, poorer soil. They like loamy soil. They, they love, like, loamy soil. They like, um... Like recently, it's like all wildflowers, right? They like um, like kind of taking over decrepit places, which... Well, I, well, I was going to say, speaking of, I mean, because we kind of have to get into it um, with the, when did you feel magic this week? Because mine was absolutely bawling my eyes out. Uh, not just when I saw it, but when I looked it up to send to you that video of the girl and the donkey. I mean... That was very emotional, <laughs> like, but, okay. but really, okay. like, heartbreaking, but, like, in a good way, like, in a sweet way. But you could tell that that donkey was so happy, and it's like, I don't speak donkey, but you could tell that that was, like, happy donkey noises. You're like, I don't speak donkey, but I understand donkey inflection. Right, and right, right, right. I knew what he was getting at. Um, so for me this week, it's actually like houseplant related because I, so I had my gala last weekend at my job, which, uh, anyone who's ever worked a gala knows that means I fucking have been exhausted all week and we have another large event tomorrow, but I had like this like moment on Tuesday night where I was like, okay, I'm going to like do some houseplant care. And I was just like going through all of my houseplants and thinking about how big they've gotten and looking at all of my new growth and snuggling up on the babies. And I was just like, God damn, my plants, even though I'm exhausted, they're flourishing. And that felt magical. <laughs> no, love that. You were, you were giving me the little tour before we 
hopped on and everyone's looking so good. Yeah, and Guillermo, my monstera, is getting huge. So uh, he's about to hit the point where I'm going to have to put him on rollers because he's getting very hard to carry back and forth to the bathroom to water. Oh, poor babe. Getting too big for his britches, you know. I know. He likes his showers. And I like it, too, because it's really annoying to try to, like, hand wipe down leaves when you have a fuck ton of house plants which is why they get a shower so i can like now that i have a removable shower head i can just like spray them all down and then it's like oh look we're having a like summertime hurricane in your tropical environment that's what's happening <laughs> that's exactly what's happening <laughs> but no i wanted to talk about um, sort of the ethos of the horse girl because we actually come from a town with actual horse girls yeah, I mean, I would say I'm like a self-identified former horse girl. I used to like ride horses every summer when I would go to see my grandparents in Odessa. Um, I'll have to find it if I can remember to post it. Like there's a very 90s picture of me feeding a horse wearing a windbreaker looking back over my shoulder. Um, I love it. But big Which, horse girl vibes. <laughs> but big horse girl vibes. But I would say, no, it's like, there's definitely, okay, there's definitely two kinds of horse girls. And so there's the girls that are, like, really into, like, black beauty. And I saw, okay, it's called the Unicorns of Balinor, which is one that I haven't heard of, but it is from the year 2000. There's, like, a million of them. Um, but the covers, I'm like, this is what I think of when I think of horse girls. That and Black Beauty, which is like kind of like the the ultimate horse girl novel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like Texas is definitely like prime horse girl country. I'm like my one of my favorite modern representations of the horse girl is definitely Tina Belcher from Bob's Burgers. Oh no, and yeah. So I'm saying. There's the horse girls that are like into they they like <clears throat> fantasize about horses. And those girls are very different from the girls that actually like do horse stuff. So like yeah, the girls right, that, right. that like compete in barrel racing and you know, like girls who actually like have and ride horses, very, very different vibe. Um and you know, much love to them both. But I think sort of the, the nerdy girls that read the books about horses are the girls that are now witches. The barrel racing girls are all married to like Christian fundamentalists and have five children. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was definitely a part-time having access to horses girl. So I have seen both sides of that coin and clearly I am a witch. I spent most of my years reading about horses um you know sea biscuit had a very like challenging and complicated spot in my heart because i recognized how terrible horse racing was for the animals Yo, but, sure. you know. <laughs> um, lots of good horse novels out there um i know because i it's one of those things where it's so pulpy and there's like a million of them that are basically the same one and we we also have to like talk about the horse girl movies because they are all also very pulpy and all kind of follow like the same basic 
plot line troubled girl from the city has to go out to the country for some reason hopefully it's not something too serious but it's just for the summer but somehow she gets caught up in horse stuff and it changes her life yeah she turns it around for the horse um also love the idea of oh that horse can't be tamed you know (laughs) Yep. That horse can't be tamed, but it will allow itself to be ridden by the right person. It will allow itself to be ridden by the right person, but also it can be tamed if you are a 12-year-old girl from the city. Well, yeah, because really, they tamed each other. They tamed each other, but also being a girl, a troubled girl from the city is the same as being an untamable horse. Yeah, they're the same picture. It's the same picture. Um, okay, so, but horse girl culture, okay, I think everyone who is not aware now has a bit of uh, of a reference for horse girl culture, so we're just going to roll right into Pegasus. So um, we have taken a little bit of a hiatus from doing constellations, but guess what? There's 88 recognized constellations. This segment's not ending any fucking time soon, so here we are. Um <clears throat> And we are keeping with this week's horse girl theme by picking Pegasus because we were like, um, what's the horse girliest constellation? It's Pegasus. It's the wig, you know, it's a horse with wings. Like that's every horse girl's dream. Um, yeah. All of that Lisa to say. Frank, Lisa Frank was really servicing the Pegasus girls in the 90s for sure. Oh my gosh, right? Um, So right off the rip, I want to talk location so we can kind of know where it's at. Unfortunately, in the Northern Hemisphere, you cannot see Pegasus right now because it is a winter constellation. So we can be on the lookout for that after October. But where is she at? So, um, and I'm actually excited about this. Well, for a couple of reasons, but it is right off the ecliptic plane between Pisces and Aquarius. So um, if we know where the ecliptic plane is, that's where the zodiac is. That's where the sun and the moon go, right? If you were to draw a line where the sun goes, that's the ecliptic plane. That's where the zodiac is. That's um, zero degrees if you look at a star chart. So, you know, that's an easy one to find if you're not familiar with any of the rest of it, okay? But um, sort of between Aquarius and Pisces and up a little bit so you know if you know where those two are at you know where pegasus is at but a lot of times pegasus does get mistaken for the big dipper shout out to ursa major also a wintertime constellation because of the big square the square of pegasus um but it's not it's not that's uh the square of pegasus so um, they're not even that close to each other. So, you know, get your shit together, people who mistake Pegasus for the Big Dipper. Get your shit all together and stop pretending you know about stars because you don't. Raining down judgment. Um, <clears throat> so, but, you know, that might not give you a lot to work with. Um, but yeah, the big square. The big square is easy to find. It's like the four brightest stars in the asterism um and the big square has been a constellation in cultures around the world because that's really the easiest part of pegasus to see and so those four stars are called um 
Alpha, Gamma, and Delta Pegasi, and Alpha Andromedae. But they also have the old Persian names Markab, Shiat, Algonib, and Alpharads, which do not get me wrong. Our current cataloging system is very sci-fi with all the the numbers and the dashes and the letters, and it's probably like really easy for nerds to use. But where is the romance in that? You know, where is the mysticism? Where is the mystery? Let's... I mean, when you're saying names like Markab, Shiat, Algonib, and Alpharats, they sound like demons. Like they I feel like I accidentally like summoned demons. some demons. <laughs> <laughs> well, oops, I was just reading star names and I accidentally summoned some demons. What do you gotta do? Um, <laughs> but no, those were those were such cool names. Like make star names cool again. Make star names cool again. I'm tired of all these dashes. I'm tired of all these letters. You know, if a star has really cool stuff, give it a cool name. Like, I'm always like, when they find really cool shit around other stars, and it's like, oh, this one's called, like, Henderson 27A. And it's like, bitch, what? Yeah. Can we, like, can we, can we, we name, can do better. Can we name stars shit like Demon Slayer and, like, shit like that again? Like, just yeah, I mean, give them all demon names. Let's give them all do demon it. names. Um, but back to the square. So the Mesopotamians did see the square. Um, and they saw it as its own constellation, which they called the field, which, you know, very creative. They saw a square. They were like, the square is a field. Really groundbreaking work, Mesopotamians. You know, you're doing wow. so good. You're doing so good. Florals for spring. Groundbreaking. Right. They were like, oh, it's a square. It's a field, like at a farm. Um... But the Persians looked at that square and they were like, that's a horse and you all know it. And the Greeks were like, yeah, we're seeing the horse, but like very clearly it's got wings, right? Like that's Pegasus. Um, and that's how it happened. That's canonically how culture works. And because when one culture becomes dominant and the other one is waning, they all get together and have a meeting about what the stars and gods are named, you know? It's like when they change administrations at the White House. So like they all get together just one time and they're like, oh yeah, that's the uh, that's the horrors. And they're like, yeah, no. It's all the paperwork and cataloging and the unsexy behind the scenes for empire changes. Right, right, right. Um, but they were like, no, that's Pegasus. Like we love this horse idea, but we have this guy, we have this character, Pegasus. So that's Pegasus now, great. Um, which is like a really cliff notesy version of the story. Um, but I will be telling like the Greek version of the mythology momentarily. But before that, I did want to talk about location because isn't the Aquarius Pisces cusp like horse girl territory? Yeah, I'm I was also like, we got water, we got air, we got clouds, we've got like cute little fishies and alien water bearers, and that is somehow equals horse girls somehow, but it, it just does i'm like i could see like name me a horse girl that we were friends with in middle school and i bet they have pisces or aquarius placements or both i mean my god yeah i mean i'd believe it i'd believe it um 
I also feel like, and I just have to say this, I feel like the Aquarius horse girl is the horse girl that knows the names of all the stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, could mount a Roman war horse. Yeah. I mean, I feel pretty confident just to be that person about it. I'm like, I feel pretty confident that I could still saddle a horse. Which, that's a, yeah, that's cool you as know. fuck. It's fun, but yeah, you're totally right. I'm like, I could 100% saddle a horse. I do not know what all of the straps are called because I have a Pisces moon. I've got that Aquarius ascendant. So it's like, I look like I would know when I'm putting the saddle on, but my Pisces moon is like, JK, JK, JK. It's like, I know you where know, it it's like, you know how to use it. You're like, the strappy thing goes into the hook thing, and then you buckle the thing. And hey, if it works, it works, though. You know, exactly. That's, that's what I say. That's what I that's like one of my main philosophies in life is that knowing how to do something and knowing all the words for it. I mean, like knowing how to do the thing is more important than knowing all the shit. I also just have to like laugh at the fact that it's like two people with ADHD that are like, I can do all this stuff, but I'm not going to learn the fucking like vocabulary. Right. <laughs> yeah. But also I make, I, I think there's a point to be made that who cares if you can do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is like the, those who. Nerds, like, that's you that's true there's the like those who know how to do do and those who don't know or know how to do do those who can do i don't know but, i i cannot remember how that goes you so know they, what i'm saying i'm saying yeah and then and then you become a teacher and then you become uh, a teacher <laughs> something about being a teacher or doing things and like belittling educators all right um but yeah i feel like pegasus is at home with the horse girls between Aquarius and Pisces. Um, but before we get into the mythology of it, I do have some some fun facts about Pegasus, the constellation, and region of space. Um, because that's really what we're talking about when we talk about a constellation. It's kind of just, I mean, really, if you look deep enough, like the James Webb deep field photography, there's like galaxies and stuff out there, you know? Like we draw the square of the four brightest things we can see, we say that's Pegasus, but really it's a region of the sky. And right? sometimes those regions, like sometimes the individual bright points we see aren't nearly as close together as one might think. They really aren't. Space um, is but, wild. <laughs> so the first planet that was ever discovered outside of our solar system was discovered around the star. 51 Pegasi um, back in the early aughts, um, which is now confirmed as a giant, red hot, completely inhospitable place, but it is the first. So, nah, 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 suck it, other exoplanets. You know, if you're not first, you're last. So, if you're not first, you're not first. So, does it matter? Yeah, you might as well not finish at that point. Right. Um, but the region of Pegasus is also home to a supermassive black hole. Really cool. Um, one of the first spiral galaxies ever discovered. One of the oldest globular clusters that we can see. Um, yeah, so it's a pretty happening little spot in space, right? Also, it's like really close to the Andromeda galaxy, which was like the first kind of other galaxy that we ever saw, you know, because it's really close. Well, comparatively, but it's right there. Anyway, on to the mythology. So Pegasus was born when Perseus killed Medusa, right? 
So at the time, she was pregnant by Poseidon. And, you know, in this classic Greek way, um, babies jump out of her blood when she's killed. Um, and, you know, one of them is a flying horse and one of them is a guy. And like, I guess technically he's a demigod, demigorgon kind of guy, but he's just the shape of a guy, right? Like he's just shaped like some guy. Um, and to be completely clear, that guy whose name is Crisador was not Hercules. So once again, a glaring inaccuracy in Disney's Hercules movie. I mean, look, we probably should petition to get that horrible misinformation uh, taken down. Um, it's just rude, okay? Um, Despite the fact that legit, it's one of the best Disney movies. It, yeah, it's it's upsetting. It's so upsetting how good it is. You're not wrong. Um, but so one of the things that does seem to be true about Pegasus is that he does get shuffled around as like this sidekick slash magical mount to the top heroes, right? The heroes of the ages and the blah, blah, blah. And um, one of the major handoffs happens when, oh my God, this name, uh, Bella Rafontes slays the Hydra, which is, yeah. actually, which is actually funny because the Hydra is Pegasus's nephew by way of old Crisador and an Oceanid um, getting busy. I just want to applaud you saying Bellerafontes because fuck yeah. Um, but Bellerafontes would be Pegasus's last hero because after years of adventuring and having outlived his own children, no doubt, because being the collateral damage of the top hero, it's very machismo, a lot of people out to get you. Um, he commands Pegasus at the end of his life to take him to Mount Olympus, feeling that his status as a hero of the age would make him welcome in the gardens of the gods. Now, I just want to stop here and say, how many of the Greek myths are about man's hubris? Yeah, I was about to say, um, wow, one of the things we know about the Greek gods is uh, they really want to say get fucked to anyone who tries to compare themselves to them. Right. Um, so actually, he was wrong. Um, because as they sort of make their approach into Mount Olympus, Zeus either, depending on the myth, um, zapped Bellerophontes right off Pegasus's back with a lightning bolt, or in the alternate version, he sends a gadfly to sort of tickle Pegasus's rear uh, to make him buck Bellerophontes. I mean, that one feels pervy enough for Zeus. It does feel pervy enough for Zeus. Um, but basically, he does fall off of Pegasus, regardless of how. Um, and I think you'll all remember from our coverage of Hephaestus that it can take up to seven days to fall back down from the top of Mount Olympus. Maybe even longer, because a hero has a lot more surface area to create drag than a baby. In my scientific opinion, it probably took longer than seven days even. And many people value my scientific opinion as one of the top um, 
scientists studying people falling off of Mount Olympus. Um, I'm sorry, you mean leading world expert scientist in people I falling did, off of Mount I, Olympus? I did do the math of how tall Mount Olympus would have to be for a baby to take seven days to fall into the ocean from the top. Uh, and that was groundbreaking research, which has been quoted in a lot of academic papers, actually. So yeah, guys, I don't know if you know this, but Nick's kind of a big wig in academia. Yeah. So <laughs> um, anyway, after that, Zeus uses Pegasus to hold his lightning bolts, which Okay, cool. It's like you're um, turning Pegasus into a fucking pack mule. I said caddy. You know, it's like because I could easily see Zeus being the kind to to be into golf, and I we I don't like anyone who likes golf. I'm sorry. I haven't met anyone who's super into golf that I enjoy either. So and like someone needs to look at the science of that because there's something to that. There's something about that golf. I people, think it's called. Wealthy people, wealthy people are usually boring. Yeah, I think that really sums it up, doesn't it? Um, but basically, after being Zeus's lightning bolt carrier or whatever, years of faithful service, he gets to retire as a constellation. It's kind of like Zeus's top sort of uh, consolation prize. So... Wow. Not, re not really the most interesting mythology around it. I think really the cool thing is, what if there was a flying horse? Let your imagination run wild with that one. Um, but so some more fun facts about Pegasus. Um, Chinese urinologist, which did you know that a urinologist is what they call someone who uh, makes constellations? Just No, because it sounds like someone who's really into pee. It does sound like someone who's really into pee. Um, they see this part of the sky as the black tortoise of the north. And they view it as a very auspicious constellation to look at in matters of protection. And they do have a shrine um, to the black tortoise of the north in Kyoto, which I might go, I might just go check it out. Can I just say I love the word auspicious? I me too. Doesn't it? It's it's a it's, great word. It's a good word. Um Oh, and in Vedic celestial maps, this area of the sky is where the moon rests and has a nap. I love so that. that. That's kind of nice. Um, so yeah, Pegasus. She's up there. She's up, she's, she's there. up there. And she's a big square. <laughs> she's up there. She's on a field. She is a field. She is a field. She, she is a field. Because they looked daddy. at that. Because someone looked at that square. And they were like, that's a horse. I mean, that's how I, oft I often think about <laughs> the first people to name these constellations. And I'm like, wow, uh, <laughs> that's a, very what? creative, buddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this week, I am excited to talk about um, a gorgeous little wildflower friend, a common evening primrose or Onothera by Ennis. <laughs> Onathera. Wow, you're like great at the pronunciations and my Latin's out here just like, uh? um, I hate that we call certain plants common because it feels kind of like calling the plants basic, which I don't love. But some of the other names that you'll see this plant referred to as are uh, King's Cure-All or Evening Star, which are way cooler than common evening primrose. Although, 
Evening Star sounds like a newspaper. <laughs> I was kind of thinking it was giving me like Morning Star, like Lucifer. Lucifer. Vibes. Lucifer. <laughs> no, no, no. I get that. I just for some reason I'm I'm seeing like because like like an evening like back in olden timey days when they would do a nighttime newspaper. Yeah, because isn't the Dallas Morning News the Morning Star? Isn't that a thing? No. Or it was you're called of, the Morning Star. You're thinking what of the, the you're thinking Star? of the Star Telegram. Oh, and they had the someone had the Morning Star though. I don't I don't know. I feel like that's very satanic. I mean, anyway. Anyway. Is. Okay, well, we're going to not talk about newspaper names. Um, in the Victorian language of flowers, evening primrose or primro primrose uh, represents fickleness. They don't technically have evening primrose in the UK, but they have primroses. And I think fickleness feels appropriate for evening primrose. So we're going with it. Um, it's a biennial. It ranges from two to six feet tall, although most evening primrose that I've ever seen tends to fall like on the low to mid-range side of that. I don't think I've ever seen a six foot tall evening primrose, although that, I mean- I, I feel like that would be some like Alice in Wonderland shit. Like yeah. if, I saw, if I saw a six foot tall primrose, I'd be like, am I tiny? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, did I get real small? Um, the stems on these, they're hairy. They kind of have a bit of a purple tinge, but they're also really leafy. So when I look at them, they kind of, to me, almost have like a tarragon vibe, if that makes sense. Like the way the, the leaves look and how, how compact they are on the plant. Um, but the flowers like are showstoppers. They're, they're big, they're yellow, they're lemon scented. I'm like, these are very Nick flowers. Uh, they also open in the evening and by the evening, they mean like around 9 p.m. And then they close up by noon. I'm like, Nick, if you were a flower, I think you might be an evening primrose. I think so. Also, primrose just makes me think of a twink for some reason. Uh, yeah, a very primrose. <laughs> very um, prim, very proper. <laughs> Um, so some wildlife will eat the roots of the plant, um, but the seeds are actually like a really important source of natural bird feed. These play kind of a very important role actually in the ecosystems. Um, they're night blooming, so they're like popular with our moth friends. Texas does have hella moths, which is something that I didn't really realize until I moved somewhere else. Um, but specifically, the evening primrose is the larval host for the primrose moth, but also the white-lined sphinx moth, which I'm like, I think it's a really epic looking moth. It's like one of the most abundant and common hawk moths in North America. I love a hawk moth. I think they're super dope. Um, hawk moths are also like the caterpillars have the horns on them. I hate that the tomato hornworm makes such a dope looking moth because I fucking have to kill them if I find them because they will eat all of my plants. But the moths are gorgeous. Anyway, so these uh, these are like really important to the ecosystem. Again, deer or giant rats, as I would say, uh, will eat 
older evening primrose. Hummingbirds can be seen sipping on the nectar uh, in the morning. And then the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center database does specifically note uh, that these have a special value to native bees. So they're a big deal. Like these are really good for the environment. Um, you can sow unstratified seeds in the fall and give them like the winter to get all softened up, or you can stratify them yourself and plant directly in the spring. You know, these really do like to get a little chilled first, but when you put them out there, you just like barely cover them with soil because they do need light to germinate. You could do my seed sowing method, which is where I go around the patch next to my house and I just kind of take things and go woof and just throw them and see what happens. And that's my garden planning style. These would do really well with that type of situation. Um, this plant does like sunny, arid locations with loamy soil. I mean, they're native to a lot of North America, but like they're all over Texas. So like, think about that environment. Like they really do. They don't actually like need much water at all when they're in their vegetation period, like when they're not flowering. So they're very drought friendly. Like these are a really great drought friendly flower. Um, if you do want to plant them, like be careful, do your research, because depending on where you live, these could potentially become invasive. Uh, you know, we don't like to kill out local flora. Um, but yeah, seeds can be harvested from the plants between August and November. You can totally buy them commercially, like they are available. But again, um, just another note, don't forget, give it a Google, see if you have a local seed library, especially if you're somewhere like in Texas or like around Texas where things like this are native. Like definitely, I definitely like recommend going that route. So like even in LA County, um, in our LA County library system, certain library branches will offer like free seeds to visitors, like three seed packets, like once a month. So if you live somewhere where Primrose is native, check out your library. You might be able to get the seeds for free. Um, I also like when I went down this rabbit hole, found out that there's a wildflower hotline report for Los Angeles that gets released every Friday, um, March through May. And it has like the details on all the different like gorgeous wildflower spots like across the county, which is like how fucking clutch is this? Um, it's available in like a print guide or there's like a narrated audio version by Jeff Spano. Um, he played FBI agent uh, Tobias Fornell on NCIS. I'm like, how fucking Los Angeles is that? But I am stoked. Like it's almost the end of May, obviously, but next year y'all know I'm going to be getting that wildflower hotline report every fucking week as soon as it's available. Um, anyway, back to evening primrose. So the Cherokee, the Iroquois, the uh, Ojibwas, and the Potawatomi are among several Native American tribes that historically have used evening prim primrose um, for both food and for medicinal purposes. So you can like super eat evening prim primrose, like most of it is edible. So you can like cook and eat the young greens. You can mince the raw roots and like marinate them in a vinegar based dressing for about 20 minutes and then eat them. Apparently they get like real radish vibes when you prepare them like that. Um, you can cook the roots to like thicken a soup or a stew. The rosette leaves in year one have a mustardy taste. You can stir fry them. The flowers are totally edible when they're raw. So you can mix those in with like mild greens for a tasty, beautiful salad. 
um, I, I will point out they're again, totally edible, but don't overdo it because if you eat too much of it, it can cause some digestive upset. You know, it's like this summer that I became obsessed with eating frozen mango and then ate an entire bag one day and like puked, you know, moderation as always. So Let's talk briefly about medicinal uses. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. I'm not a doctor. Nick's not a doctor. This podcast is not intended to treat or diagnose anything. Please always talk to a doctor before you embark on any herbal regimens. In general, don't get medical advice from podcasts. So uh, one of the most common things you see at evening primrose uh, in is like the oil. So like either in supplements of like the oil in a tablet, or um, you can find it like for topical uses too. I want to say like this isn't a plant that shows up in the herbalism sources that I typically turn to. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because I don't want to necessarily talk about herbalism uses for something that's not, you know, that I don't have access to good resources on. But apparently um, the, the big push for it is that like the oil from evening primrose is super rich in GLA, which is like an unsaturated omega-6 fatty acid. So of course, like when you're seeing those omega fatty acids, like they're going to be recommended for women's health issues, things like PMS and menopause, because of there's like, if you don't have enough healthy fats in your diet, it can cause a lot of hormonal imbalances. And obviously, if you're a person with a uterus who menstruates, um, hormonal imbalances will show up in very regularly apparent ways that they don't for people that uh, don't menstruate. So um, both oral and topical applications of the oil are also sometimes recommended for folks with eczema. I also saw some people suggesting it for people that have um, acne that are on trenitoin because certain acne medications can like hella dry your skin out. And so evening primrose was suggested by like some like herbalists for that but again like I don't have info about this one in resources that I know and trust so I'm really like you know do your own research talk to your own herbalist it's not something that I'm I know a whole lot about and I could find in again the stuff that I feel is well vetted um but yeah so that's generally what it's for on to magical uses though right like okay guys it's a plant that opens at night and closes in the morning. Shocker, it's associated with the moon. What? Um, it's it's also a plant that I've seen a lot of associations with like portals and opening spiritual doorways. I think that like you see that a lot in general with plants that are um, nictinastic. So they're plants that open and close at certain times of day. So nictinastic plants are different than necessarily like phototropism plants like so some plants react to like the sun for when they're opening and closing but things like evening primrose don't necessarily so like evening primrose is up there with like poppies poppies do the same thing where they'll open and close at certain times of the day and night regardless of whether or not the sun is up um, but with like morning glories, if you have a super overcast day, you might have noticed that like your morning glories don't open until really late in the day. It's because they're relying on the sunlight to tell them when to open and close. So anyway, you see, I think a lot of stuff with like portals and doorways and like liminal kind of work, you know, some maybe work with like dark goddesses, especially if you have plants that are um, nictinastic. 
So it's also a four-petaled flower, though. And with fours, like four-petaled flowers in particular, and like plants that have, that produce flowers with four petals, I often end up seeing stuff with like balancing associated with it. So like balancing energies, um, like, you know, healing work, things like that. But it's also, um, if like numerology is your thing, like the four petals also can correlate to like four and the home. So if you want to think about balancing energies in the home, evening primrose could be one to work with. But as far as like all of the healing and balancing, also just because it is like associated with the moon and the moon is like very tied to menstruation, I'm like, I think this is a really strong candidate for a plant to work for on like period magic. I'm just gonna say it. Like if you do work around your menstrual cycle, I think evening primrose is a good friend. Uh, I also love the idea of doing like a really healing, balancing bath um, while you're on your menstrual cycle and floating evening primrose flowers in it. I think that'd be real cute um, if you're someone who likes to take baths during that time of the month. Um, but yeah, I think overall, this is a cool plant because you can like eat most of it. It's really great for all of the like cute little birds and all of the moths and all of our like friends. Fuck the deer eating the old ones, but deer will eat anything. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and it's got like cool like liminal magic associated with it. I'm like, if you're if you're a witch that lives somewhere where this grows, like go get buddied up to some evening primrose because it's like it's pretty dope. Um so my sources today, the Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center database, uh, atkinsarboretum.org, but specifically um, they had this project, it's called the Indigenous People's Perspective Project, where they were, it's an arboretum going through and doing like different plants from the perspective of like the in, like local indigenous peoples. Uh, of course, good old Wikipedia, magicalspot.com, um, lots of random Reddit threads. You get the picture. That's evening primrose. I, I just want to say, as someone who lives in a place with lots and lots of evening primrose, it's so, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, if you can go out into a field of evening primrose, it's doing a lot of great work with the wind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also, it does, like, if you are out in one of those fields, it does smell divine. Um, oh my God, yeah. And it's one of those things where you never just see a patch of it. It is literally either an entire field or nothing. So, yeah, it's a go big or go home for sure. And I, I think that they like. I love a citrus scented flower, like because I feel like that's one of the things that's so special about evening primrose is like you really do get that like lemony, like almost like lemon verbena e kind of vibe and i feel like it's just so unique with like flower smells so i i'm very team evening primrose love her love her. and she's still out right now so this was the time of year to do this segment yeah okay so do we want to do baby asks before we do a pono yeah rate review subscribe um email hey. us email us yeah hey hey hey, hey. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, so again, this is for the girlies who are really, really, really into Black beauty as children, um, because we're doing Epona this week as well as Pegasus. So, but does that sound familiar? Pony, Epona, get it? 
No, those sound totally different. What? Um, she is the Celtic goddess of horses. And yes, that is also the name of the horse in Zelda. So please do not at me for not mentioning it. Um, I mentioned it. Moving on. Uh, but kind of referring back to when I felt the magic this week, uh, she's also the goddess of donkeys, mules, and ponies, which we really need to figure out what the criteria of what is and is not a pony is, because that is so vague, y'all. We've literally had hundreds of years to figure this out. Um, when does a small horse qualify as a pony? Is there not a like species of horses that are ponies, like Shetland ponies? I'm very confused. Um, we had a pony. My grandparents had a pony. Um, and because they're very funny, his name was Big Tex. And I just remember that Leslie was writing big text one day because Leslie was the baby of the family. So of course she was on the pony. Of course. Um, and it's the only time I have ever seen a horse for some reason got startled and fucking bolted. And Leslie, like literally like a Looney Tune cartoon, like seemed like she was like floating in the air a second after Tex took off and then like fell on the ground and it was oh one of God. the most fucking hilarious things that ever happened in our childhood not for leslie but for me and morgan um that's iconic and i can i can literally see the scene in my mind's eye and i'm sure y'all were tackling yes yes because uh my sister and i morgan and i like we both have that laugh oh yeah we have a tackle um, I've embraced it as an adult, even though I was once told that I had a very ugly laugh <laughs> by someone that was supposed to be my friend, so. Um, incredible. Um, but Epona is not only really cool, she's also really ancient. So she was originally a goddess of the ancient Gauls, um, aka the continental Celts, right? So you just kind of have to look at the Gaulish Celtic progression. So they think they come from the steppe region around Russia and Uzbekistan, which is like big horse girl energy. Like, you know, these were people who dealt with Mongols and everything else over on that side of the world. Um, but there's even speculation, okay, that the chalk horse in Britain, which is a geoglyph from around 1500 BC, could be representative of uh, an Epona figure. Not confirmed, that's speculation, but it's speculation by people who know more about this than me, so good speculation, I would say. Educated speculation. Educated speculation. Um, but what we do know is that there's stone and bronze statuaries in the Celtic parts of Europe going back into the hundreds of years BC of the horse lady. So think um, Sibylle, but with horses instead of lions. That's what a lot of the statuary of Epona looks like. Um, sometimes a mare and a foal motif, which is actually later used uh, for depictions of Rhiannon and her son in the Mabinagian, um, which they also kind of speculate that the Epona figure factors into the Rhiannon story because Epona might be a psychopomp in her own right. But we're going to talk about that a little later on. Uh, but it does connect to the Rhiannon story, so I've got to plug it here. Um, but here's where things get really interesting, I think. 
So at the time of the fall of the Roman state religion, there's evidence right across the whole Roman Empire that the Romans had adopted Epona worship themselves. Uh, and this I do find interesting because unlike Sibylle, who was this goddess that was passed down from previous traditions through the Greeks to the Romans um, in sort of her original form, um, it's like they picked up Epona as a, almost like a spoil of war, right? So, and I think this really exemplifies this almost like anti-dogma that the Roman state religion had, because you have this, these Gaulish Celts who were like the top horse people in Europe at the time. So like our words, car, carriage, and chariot all come from the Gaulish word karos, uh, which, you know, little linguistic fun fact for you, but this is kind of the trail that we are able to follow, right? Um, and so the Romans were like, most of our gods are doing a really good job, but we're not the best horse people. Let's see what Epona is all about. Like, clearly these Gauls know something we don't. And this was the only time that a Celtic god was adopted into the Romian pantheon, by the way. And we're talking full goddess status. They had a temple to her in Rome. There is a feast of Epona noted in some archaic calendars, which would have been December 18th, which I find interesting that it would be sort of at the ass end of Sagittarius season. This like yeah. horse girl festival. Um, you know, one and one aren't always two, but sometimes they are, okay? I'm like, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. But, um, so here's the thing about Epona, too, is that, yes, there was a temple to Epona, but most of the artifact remains of Epona worship come from Roman stables. So they would have these sort of nooks, in the horse stables, which is where they would keep their little statues of Epona, and the cavalry would all pay their respects when they would kind of go get their horses, right? Um, and the most common, and I think this is interesting too, the most common offering was roses. How which, cute. Which they still put a garland of roses around a horse at the end of a horse race. The more things change. Right. It's, but I mean, that's why, that's why you do that. Um, and I mean, I guess also, maybe it's just easy to make a wreath of roses. Did you ever think about that? There always seem to be wreaths of roses. I just something to think about. Um, I feel anyway. like it's just, they're very, like roses are very sturdy flowers. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they're just, maybe they're not tasty to the horses too. So they don't feel like. Oh, they're not going to try to nosh. Maybe they're not going to try not, they're not going to try to eat it. Yeah. Lots to think about here. But roses, so you would offer roses to the Epona statuary that you would come back um, from your battle as a Roman cavalryman, right? But, so why were the Romans so impressed by Epona? And it is because when they were fighting with the Gauls, the Gauls would send in men to die before they would send in their horses. They like revered the horses so much that the Romans saw Epona as this 
so, such a powerful goddess that they would rather kill their own men than send the horses into battle. Which and that feels appropriate to me. And that does it does, um, and that I but you know there is kind of this thing with Epona because she's also seen as this sort of fertility god. Like really, I mean, once you get into like war and fertility and horses, it's kind of really we've we've opened a whole umbrella this is like sort of like a catch-all goddess but i think it's fair because horses would have been a huge part of this world that people lived in like that was the that that's how you got the mail that's how you got supplies that's how commerce happened i mean you know like horses yeah, were I mean, important yeah they were kind of like the spoke in the wheel of that era right well, and speaking of which, that's why the Celts were so rich in gold. You know, there's so many golden Celtic artifacts from Gaul, from Germany, from all the old Celtic places, because they had horses and they were really good at horses. And so they were able to go long distances. And they were able to trade with people really far away. And that's why they were a world power at the time. And that's why Rome was so jealous. And again, the only goddess they adopted from the entire Celtic pantheon when they did sort of it defeated that part of Europe was Epona. And that's really the story. Because what? Obviously, we know that Epona is a horse goddess. So if you have horses, that's Epona. But I think, you know, for the witches, I mean, I how many witches out there have horses? I think that's really like a niche thing in the 21st century, truly. Like... I mean, yeah, even where none of us have, because so many of us can't afford to even own homes, let alone land, let alone a horse. I mean, you could get yeah. two thirds of the way there, but then you still have to shell out the money for the horse. Horses are expensive. Oh, right, uh, and expensive to get. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's not even like it's not even like the. Yeah, like you need all the land and not to mention the food, just the horses themselves are. Yeah. Anyway, but so they were really impressed that they would send men into battle instead of horses. They were like, Epona must be a bad bitch. And they spread it throughout the Roman Empire because guess how they spread the Roman Empire itself on the backs of horses with cavalry soldiers. I mean, it really just makes sense that this was way more widespread than like worshiping Jupiter. Yeah, I mean, it It literally tracks. It, it tracks along with the travel. <laughs> it tracks along with the travel. Um, but so there are, so Epona as a psychopath is depicted in a lot of sort of funerary art of Roman soldiers because that was one of their primary gods that they worshiped. So it makes sense that they would kind of see her as someone that would be guiding them through the other side, right? And one of the things that she's depicted with sometimes is keys to the underworld. Interesting. Like a ring of keys, which I, just the sim symbolism of that. But, you know, also to just have that ring of keys. Well, and it's, it's just interesting because it's like the only other goddess that I know of that's like super heavily associated with keys is Hecate. Right. But, okay, but sometimes they they did kind of say that they saw, and these are Roman sources talking about Gauls, this triplicity of the goddess, and that sometimes Epona 
would be um, depicted as this woman very confidently and calmly riding a horse with three birds and the three birds supposedly represented the three aspects because again you have this fertility aspect she's often seen carrying a cornucopia um and you know this fertility you know this like human fertility aspect which i don't know why the ancients were so obsessed with like horses as a symbol for like good family values but maybe it was just like the way that the mom horse like leads the foal or maybe it's because the baby horse can like get up and walk right away that is one of the like cool things about horses is that they just get up when they're born yeah i've got i've been able to like see a couple of foals born and it is like really cool it's um, like kind of disgusting but also really cool which they do draw a lot of comparisons between what they call the vengeful demeter and Epona, because Epona, or Vengeful Demeter, is sometimes depicted as, like, the great mare, which is actually what Epona means in Celtic. Um, so, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, how much cultural mixing is there before everything is the same thing? Yeah. It's just interesting to me to think about, like, how many aspects of certain goddesses you can see in Epona because it's like we're talking about the triplicity we're talking about like keys shit we're talking about like ravens and crows and the morrigan and it's like is every goddess somehow tied back into Epona well it's one of those things where like if you follow the human migration from India which is where all of the people that are not in Africa came from I mean, you know, I, everything just kind of branches off from there, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's like, I guess if you're looking at what we would call quote-unquote, like, Western mythology, it's like, once you get back to the Gauls, that's kind of like, they're the ones who are the root of a lot of these cultures whose mythology we talk about. Right, but I think Epona's really cool. I think it's one of those things where it's like, as witches, we have to kind of read between the lines because we're not cavalrymen and we're not taking care of horses. But I do think there's there's something that's really, I think, spiritually correct about this story of like, the people who are best at horses, we should worship their horse god. And just kind of having that openness that I think is a good lesson for everyone. Yeah, it's like, they did that really well. So we're just going to take it. But instead right. of just taking it, you could adapt and learn. But, you know. But, I mean, even even with the just taking it, like, the mindset of these are the best horse people. Fuck whoever our horse god is. We're just going to start using theirs because clearly she's the best. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I don't know. I love that energy. Game recognize game. Game recognize game. They say. Um, love. Love, love, love. Well, let's get into the tarot scope. Um, I felt like this was very appropriate when I drew Leo this week because Leo and horses, horses are proud and majestic, as is the lion. Um, but then I fucking drew strength for y'all. And I was like, wow, groundbreaking. Um, but I'm using my herb crafter tarot deck and the thing that I like about the way they depict strength is number one it's it's got a garlic like garlic's tied into a knot but then there's also like 
honey that the garlic is soaking in that you can see and like this corner here and then there's like a honeycomb so i feel like this deck is actually the perfect one to get strength for you spicy little leo bitches because the way that strength is interpreted in this is that it's like you have it in you but it's really important to like bring like sweetness and kindness to that strength you know i think it's really easy to be like bold and boisterous and we love that about you leo but sometimes like putting a little honey on there can really help smooth things over because your strength doesn't have to come at the expense of others and i think that uh the honey there is really helpful well it's it's almost like garlic is naturally strong already you kind of have to bring the honey yourself exactly exactly bring the emotional honey um you know and i always love the like crafting with the card so in this one i love that the first one the first crafting suggestion was to wear a garlic amulet um let it just hang over your heart i i'm like if someone's wearing garlic irl they're definitely a witch but i cannot imagine going out in public and the year of our goddess 2023 wearing a fucking garlic amulet people are like what are you afraid of vampires um <laughs> but also again like sweeten intensity and conflict by making an immune boosting garlic honey so i don't know if y'all have done this before but it's fucking dope like garlic honey drizzled over pizza like it sounds like yeah. heaven on earth vibes it is heaven on earth vibes but anyway strength for leo because i guess today was all about just things that um make sense and are not always super surprising but that's okay right it's like evening primrose being associated with the moon and a square being a field exactly um and girls liking horses and girls liking horses and i think you know maybe a fun way to round out our discourse about horse girls is that um it was presented in a TikTok recently that the opposite of a horse girl or the male version of a horse girl is a knife boy oh man um, and i i see it and like not not in in like the 2023 way where it's like bringing a knife to school to like do something like in the 90s way where the kid who was a boy scout would bring in his like swiss army knife for show and tell and be like look it's got scissors yeah exactly that's the vibe i like it i like um it. so some something to think about there <laughs> food for thought food truly for thought. um but what do we say to all the horse girls out there to all you horse girls plus v bitches <laughs> bye <laughs> I did see Daniel Radcliffe's very erotic rendition of She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain. Oh my god, okay, like the most iconic Daniel Radcliffe moment of all time. Um, I just want to say, I loved The Miracle Workers. Yeah, I love that show. Or I guess it's just called Miracle Workers, but yeah, Steve Buscemi is God. Better than Morgan Freeman, like more believable Un more believable i believe that yeah. we live in the universe where steve buscemi is god yes 
Yes. Like, Steve Buscemi is not the god we need, but he's the god we deserve. He's the god we deserve, and things would make so much sense if that was canonically true. I mean, it is. 